And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am really grateful to Dr. Gerald Mast, Professor of Political Science at Carthage College, for being willing to uh, join me for today's program to try to put into context and to try to make some sense of the events which uh, overtook our nation's capital uh, on Wednesday, the 6th of January interrupting for a time the what was anticipated to be the sort of the final chapter of this most recent presidential election. And uh, of course, all of you don't need to hear from me the essence of what happened on, on Wednesday, but with Professor Mast, we can talk a little bit maybe about why and how and the consequences of it, uh, both the immediate consequences and also longer term consequences uh, and, and what this kind of shows us about the state of our nation at this point. So anyway, there's a lot to get to and Professor Mast, uh, I appreciate you joining me today on the morning show. Thank you so much. Good to be here, Greg. And I should also mention that we are recording this on Friday afternoon the 8th. And uh, so who knows what other events might occur uh, in the wake of our conversation, but uh, but for now, this is this is where we are, and this is what we're talking about. First, Professor, chances are high we'll miss something. <laughs> right. First, on a I suppose a somewhat personal note, I guess I would be really interested to know uh, what your kind of immediate, sort of visceral response was to those events as they began unfolding in Washington D.C. And with that, I want to ask: uh, To what extent were you surprised? by what occurred. Well, you know, as a professor of political science, uh, I wear a couple of hats, a professional one uh, in which I'm an analyst. I'm trying to make sense of the political world as it, um, I, I perceive it. And I'm also in a non-professional sense, a, a person, a citizen. Um, and, you know, the, the, the role of, of being an analyst um, really kind of requires you to set aside um, some of your more emotional responses. Um, uh, you can't do that entirely. And in some sense, you, you shouldn't do that entirely because emotions can be a cue to, um, you know, what other people are experiencing and they are part of the, the human, the human um, psyche. Uh, but, you know, I guess I, I would say that as an analyst, um, I wasn't surprised. As a citizen, I was shocked. Uh, I wasn't surprised because um, American politics are under an enormous amount of strain right now. Um, the, there's a, a, a enormous amount of, 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 of pressure. Uh, we can get into the, the various factors um, that have um, got us to this point, but um, you know, what, what went on, what, what I think we can accurately, um, objectively call uh, uh, an insurrection, um, didn't just spring out of nothing, right? I mean, it wasn't, you know, um, it, it had precursors. And so as an analyst, I'm paying a lot of attention to those precursors. I'm paying a lot of attention to trends. I'm paying a lot of attention to, to um, kind of developments, attitudes, uh, perspectives, um, behaviors, and so forth. And so um, when the presidential election uh, in November 
came and went without major um, incidents. Um, I was relieved um, and very happy uh, and somewhat surprised um, as an analyst. Um, and I knew that um, this kind of period, we call it an interregnum between an election and the, the um, uh, swearing in of a new president, was going to be um, difficult because the incumbent president, um, President Donald Trump, um, has kind of refused to say that he would um, concede an election that he lost, uh, which would make him unique in American history. And um, it raised all kinds of questions about um, what would happen as a result of a president refusing to recognize um, uh, a duly carried out election that went against him. So I wasn't I'm surprised, um, but I was shocked because uh, it is dangerous and threatening and uh, it is a reflection of the very fraught and, and, and dangerous historical moment we find ourselves in. One of the things I saw from you in recent days in writing about uh, what happened on Wednesday was something in which you sorted out some terms that I think the typical American has only the vaguest notion of, of what they really mean. And I'm talking about terms like treason, insurrection, sedition. And I really appreciated the fact that you spelled those out to the best of your ability, exactly what those terms mean. Before you kind of talk us through that, I, I think uh, it's important uh, for you to explain why we're even talking about such terms in the first place. What prompted you to want to offer some clarification about that? Well, um, as I said, President Trump um, refused to agree to to um, concede an election that he, he lost, or at least he refused to say he would. And um, when he did lose the presidential election, he refused to acknowledge it. Um, every president has acknowledged uh, the, the, the victor of the election um, when he, uh, he has lost. And so this was unique. Um, president Trump has had a built a pretty clear um, reputation for, for um, thumbing his nose at norms uh, of governance um, and, and American politics. And uh, Obviously, he's generated an enormous amount of heat within the political culture, both um, uh, in support of him on his behalf amongst his supporters, but also amongst his op opponents. And so um, the rhetoric uh, used to describe Mr. Trump and his presidency is, is pretty um, extreme, I think you could say. But given that that his unwillingness to to acknowledge um, his electoral defeat uh, has you know played out um, since you know the election in November. Um, many people have been talking about the the threat to democracy that a president um, could pose who refuses to concede, and the I mean a democracy depends upon um, an election system in order to create the, the component of the democracy that we call popular sovereignty. So democracy is composed of freedom and equality and popular sovereignty. Popular sovereignty just means the people rule. The mechanism by which the people rule uh, is through elections. And if elections are not honored, then there can be no popular sovereignty. 
And so um, it is reasonable to raise questions about the health of the democ- democracy if the president refuses to, to, to acknowledge um, the elections or um, casts aspersions uh, on the election um, by promoting f- allegations that are false about um, fraud and, and so forth. And, and um, so, uh, you know, I decided, you know, look, I think we need to make sense of what treason and sedition and, and um, uh, insurrection actually are and, and uh, treason in a legal sense, right? In a legal sense, um, treason involves aiding an, an enemy of the United States or waging war against um, the United States if you're a, a, an American citizen. And so um, it doesn't seem to be the case here, right? Uh, there's not a foreign enemy um, uh, involved in this situation. All of the principal players here are are, are Americans. Um, insurrection, on the other hand, is is the attempt to overthrow a government um, or to impede uh, the lawful process of government. Um, and sedition is advocating um, that uh, or inciting um, that insurrection. And so... Um, what happened on on Wednesday, uh, you know, the, the, the president um, promoted um, demonstrations for over a week. He encouraged people to come. He described the demonstrations as they'll be wild. The crowd gathered outside of the White House. He exhorted them to be angry and upset. Uh, he, he, again, kind of pushed these false allegations that the election was stolen from him. Um, and said, let's go to the Capitol. We're going to go to the Capitol and, and you have to be strong or you're going to lose your country, um, which many, many observers have acknowledged uh, is a form of incitement for what followed. Um, and those observers, uh, I mean, the, there's a long list of prominent Republicans who've come forward um, accusing the president of, of such things. And, and um, so, I mean, at some point um, in our conversation, perhaps um, aside from this kind of larger picture of what this past week means to us as a country, as a nation, as a political community, um, you know, this is also going to have big consequences for the Republican Party itself. We're speaking with Dr. Gerald Mast, a professor of political science at Carthage College, and needless to say, our focus on today's program is on the events of Wednesday, January 6th, uh, when uh, the U.S. Congress's uh, typically formal recognition of the election results, of course, uh, was thrown into disarray and and, and utterly interrupted by uh, when this uh, angry mob descended on the U.S. Capitol building and uh, interrupted those proceedings, which, of course, eventually did resume. Um, Professor Mast, I think one of the things that is most interesting to me is to think about what that action, I mean, the, the action of this, this mob, of this, this riot on Wednesday, what it accomplished, and in a sense, what it failed to accomplish in terms of their own cause, and uh, in particular, what it failed to accomplish in terms of, of generating some kind of support for the president, it would seem from my amateur viewpoint that it ultimately did exactly the opposite, that it did 
all kinds of damage to President Trump and his political standing and so on. Can you talk more about exactly what was created by this action on Wednesday? Right. Um, so uh, let me begin by saying I believe um, that many of the intentions and motivations of the people who gathered on the mall um, uh, on behalf of President Trump um, were motivated out of a genuine belief that the election was fraudulently stolen from Donald Trump. Um, and I think that many Republicans, uh, you know, in the country also feel that way. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that the people g gathering on the mall who stormed the Capitol would agree with um, some kind of characterization of their actions as insurrection or sedition um, because they see themselves as def defending right the the, the the country's democratic system um which they feel is being violated by by a fraudulent uh, electoral process and a corrupt court system um now uh all opinion people are entitled to their opinions they're not entitled to their own facts and 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 you know the the fact of the matter is there has not been wide-scale fraud many 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 organizations have looked for it um political scientists have looked for it uh public interest groups have looked for it the president himself created a commission on um, electoral integrity led by chris kobach of kansas to look for it and they can't find it right and courts, um, more than 60 courts have reached decisions since the uh, election um, to examine allegations of, of fraud, and they could not find it. And our court system's far from perfect. There are real imperfections with it. And um, I think that we should engage in sober criticism of juris American jurisprudence. Um, but the courts aren't corrupt on a wide scale like this and so there's there's really no way we can lend any kind of serious credence to the belief that the election was stolen from mr trump unless you consume all of your news from a very very narrow and ideologically um motivated uh, uh media source <clears throat> so you know i believe that the 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 people who stormed the capitol on wednesday um felt that they were defending the president. And I th think that many of them believed that they were trying to protect American democracy. But I also think that they were very deluded in that um, and cynically manipulated by political leaders. Uh, and so one of the, I think, astounding things that has come um, in the wake of Wednesday is the long list of, of deep and incisive and and caustic criticism coming from republicans of republicans who have been engaged in promoting um these false allegations uh i don't know who started this term uh, jennifer rubin of the washington post of former republican herself um has been um referring the senators uh who um we're challenging the electoral vote count um, with 12 or 13 of them um, as the sedition caucus. Uh, and their actions in the last few weeks, kind of promoting the idea that the election was fraudulent, promoting the idea that President Trump's presidency could be preserved and a second term could be 
be granted, um, really aided and abetted the insurrection behavior of the crowd that ch charged the, the Capitol. And, you know, this is, this is a, a criticism that the Democrats for sure are leveling against them, but you're seeing this argument being leveled by Republicans. Um, and so, you know, um, this kind of highlights the, the coming split uh, in the Republican Party. I think that, that um, you know, the country, uh, you know, suffered a very big black eye this week. Um, but, you know, if it functions as a wake-up call for us to kind of examine the, the, the causes and work towards solutions, you know, you can say that's a good thing. I think you had to say that the consequences um, mean that Joe Biden was a big winner this week. Um, and President Trump's presidency is, 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 you know, suffered enormous damage as a result. One of the uh, intriguing comparisons I saw somebody make was to 9-11, that in some respects you saw a coming together across the political aisle in the wake of this that we have perhaps not seen, in fact, almost certainly not seen since the events of- I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. Um, certainly on the Senate side, I, I think you can begin to make, you know, th that, that kind of analogy in terms of, of uniting uh, people. If you think a little bit about the votes. So, I mean, the specific strategy right here that the president and his supporters wanted was for the Congress to refuse to certify the, the electoral college votes of a number of key states that went for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, which would leave, um, you know, uh, uh, the election, um, you know, in doubt, and 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 we'd have to we'd have to figure out what would happen, right? It's not even entirely clear what would happen because, um, you know, in any event, um, that 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 strategy uh, didn't come to pass, um, and it failed miserably in the Senate. So the votes to object to the certifying the, the, the votes for Arizona and Pennsylvania in the Senate were 93 to six and 92 to seven respectively, overwhelmingly rejecting the strategy. But when you turn to the House of Representatives, the votes were far, far closer. And in fact, if we look at just the Republicans in the House of Representatives, um, majority supported throwing those electoral college votes out um, it was 123 to 83 in favor of uh, sustaining the objection uh, for Arizona and 138 to 64. And so um, while the Republicans in the Senate overwhelmingly um, opposed the attempt to overturn the Electoral College votes for these states, um, the Republicans in the House supported overturning those votes. And so when we go to your your question about, you know, is this a kind of a 9-11 that's going to unite the country? Um, to a point, yes, but not to nearly to the extent, uh, because there's still a fair number of Republicans who are very supportive of the president. So what we're seeing here, when we I refer to these Republicans who are critical of um, Senator uh, uh, Ted Cruz and, and Josh Hawley, who are kind of, kind of ringleaders, um, of this so-called sedition caucus. Um, these criticisms are coming from, you know, elite opinion makers in the Republican party or uh, fellow politicians um, in the public. There's not nearly, I think, as much willingness to change their opinions so quickly. 
And so the differences between the House and the, and the Senate, I mean, I think are really significant. Um, that reflects institutional differences and, and so on and so forth. Interesting. What about the fact that there has been, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe saying it's a wave is overstating it, but that there have been a number of notable resignations from President Trump's inner circle and cabinet and so on uh, in, in, in the wake of all this. How do you fit that into what you were just describing? Well, so in the House of Representatives, um, it's been referred to as the constant campaign. Uh, you win election, um, day one of you being a, a member of the House is day one of your re-election campaign. No, you're never done. Um, it's a two-year term as opposed to six in the Senate. Uh, and it's designed to make um, the representatives in the House of House um, much more beholden to the opinions of their constituents. And you have to keep in mind that um, in the House of Representatives, their constituents are defined by congressional districts. Those congressional districts are, for the most part, most states drawn by state legislatures with very partisan considerations in mind. And one of the consequences of, of, of that is that House districts are not especially competitive. Uh, you're representing one party, and that's about it. You don't have to worry about people on the other side of the aisle. And so you don't. And so you, you are essentially reflecting the attitudes and uh, interests of, of people in one party only. And so the House of Representatives is traditionally much more extreme, ideologically speaking, uh, much more liberal and conservative, depending upon the district in question, than is the Senate. And um, then when you kind of look at the kind of the criticisms that key prominent Republicans um, in the country are leveling against President Trump um, in the last few days, these are people who are not office holders um, for the most part, or they're, they're members of the Senate. You don't see critics in the House with a couple of key, interesting, and local exceptions. Adam Kinzinger, a uh, member of the House of Representatives from the state of Illinois. Mike Gallagher um, in the 8th District here in Wisconsin. Um, both have been very outspoken and critical of, of the president. Kinzinger going so far as to calling for his removal via the 25th Amendment. So, you know, um, when we look at the cabinet, people stepping down, right? These are people um, who aren't beholden to, to um, voters, uh, like people in the House of Representatives. They're, they're people who are worried, of course, about their reputations and, and so forth. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's big enough to call a wave. It's certainly, it's um, sizable and noticeable. At this point, we have two, two cabinet member level members um, who've resigned, and I want to say five or six people in the White House have stepped down. Have you been surprised by the conversations that have taken place, both amongst pundits, but apparently behind the scenes as well, in terms of, for instance, invoking the 25th Amendment and or pursuing the possibility of of a second impeachment of of President Trump. I mean, did did you expect it to go that far or go in that direction? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wasn't surprised. Um, on the one hand, uh, President Trump has had a very controversial and contentious presidency. Um, and so this, I mean, and he has been already been impeached. 
Um, so uh, this this kind of response is is I think part of the ethos of the Trump presidency in many respects. Um, taking off my analyst hat as a citizen, I was opposed to to you know. Um, trying to uh, impeach him or, or remove him um, uh, until Wednesday afternoon. And then it just seemed like the case that inciting a group of people who then stormed the Capitol as it's trying to certify the Electoral College vote that went against the president who incited the, the group seems to call out for some kind of um, censure, right? And maybe it's censure by the, co the, the, the Congress. That would be one form of official sanction that the, the um, institution could do. But um, it, there's no particular penalty that comes with being censured. Um, if you don't impeach him, if you don't try to remove him, the fear, right, uh, is that you normalize this kind of rhetoric, you normalize this kind of behavior, this strategy of, of undermining faith in institutions and, and, and key processes. Um, and I mean, five people died on Wednesday. It's a, never mind the, the symbolism and the, the norms uh, that took place. I heard on the BBC, uh, Mick Mulvaney, a former chief of staff for President Trump, I think until March of this past year, state quite categorically without hesitation that he believes President Trump's political career is finished because of what occurred on, on Wednesday. Do you think that is overstating the, the, the matter? Um, his career as a an official public official is over at this point. Um, the House, uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, has issued an ultimatum that President Trump needs to resign, the cabinet needs to remove him via the 25th Amendment, or they will impeach him. Um, now, <laughs> I, she didn't hem and haw, there's no ambiguity in her statement. So, I mean, she's on record that, that this is what's going to happen. There's really not time left to adhere to the normal process. We've been through two impeachments um, in recent history. So they can't go through the committees and hear testimony and so forth. This would be, I would expect, I haven't seen anything, a drafting of very narrow articles specific to the events of Wednesday and um, sending them directly to the floor of the House of Representatives, where I suspect they would pass, and he would be impeached a second time for the first time uh, in American history that someone would be impeached twice. Would they pass the the, the Senate? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, ben Sass, Republican from Nebraska, uh, a very eloquent speaker on Wednesday night on the kind of the state of the country and the importance of elections and, and, and the danger of, of casting, you know, doubt upon the process um, has said that he's open to impeaching the president. He's the only Republican that I know of in the, in the Senate who's, who's stated as such. Um, so I'm kind of doubtful that the Senate would convict him, but you never know at this point. I mean, it's, it's hard to, hard to say. Mm -hmm. 
we should talk about the context within all of, from which all of this ultimately emerged. And I thought you wrote uh, really eloquently, uh, I think it was sometime yesterday, about what it means to be a nation and uh, what it means when a nation is as sharply divided as our nation is uh, at, at, at the moment. And uh, you even, I believe it's in your piece, pose this question, are we two Americas? And I think you go on to answer your own question and basically say at least. Uh, but it, it, it's really hard to imagine that we are at the moment a single nation, at least in terms of, of what we agree on and uh, what we hold most dear. Um, talk about that kind of fundamental divisiveness that we see right now uh, in America. Well, the technical definition of, of a nation is a group of people who um, are bound together in some sense in their own minds by, by common interests, a common shared history, uh, shared values. Um, often nations are also bound together, incidentally, by linguistic kind of language. A religion can bind them together. Uh, race and ethnicity can bind them together. In our case, the United States, States, um, we expressly reject race and religion and uh, ethnicity as a basis for nationhood, right? Um, we, uh, uh, our, the American project is explicitly in the Declaration of Independence about ideas. What binds us together are principles and beliefs that, that all men are created equal and endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And we agree right, to live amongst each other and to govern ourselves through a set of rules. And believing in that, right, is what holds us together as a nation. Now, it is not the case that nations are ever in complete agreement over kind of values, uh, the, the principles of the nation, of the country, the processes that that, that they commit to. There's always a certain amount of disagreement. Um, but at some point, too much disagreement kind of makes people committed to very, very, very different projects. And the nation becomes less coherent. The nation becomes an entity that lacks the kind of reciprocity that nations need in order to, you know, lose and not walk away from the table, so to speak. And so, um, you know, we're at a point now where our divisions are very, very, very deep. There's partisan divisions, but those partisan divisions are, are themselves composed of various kinds of subcomponents, right? Social identity, there's a rural and urban divide, there's divides along racial lines, along religious lines, along education lines, along class lines. Um, and our parties, right, kind of reflect these various kinds of divisions. And um, we're also at a point in time where I think it's best described as a kind of an epistemological crisis. It's a big, fancy college-level word. Epistemology is the, the, the study of how we know what we think we know, right? Um, and we really have this different perspective on what reality is, these competing different perspectives, 
And this is born of, of the emergence of the internet. You and I are old enough to remember the days when we didn't have the internet. We had to watch broadcast television and read a newspaper on actual paper. Um, but with the emergence of the internet, all of a sudden our options greatly expand. Um, we get our news not just from ABC, CBS, or NBC anymore. Um, our news comes from a variety of different places. Social media amplifies these different perspectives. The echo chambers really kind of are, are creating very, very, very different worldviews. And so the question we have before us is, can we rehabilitate our sense of nationhood in the face of all of these divisions? Um, that's the task. And it's not just the task of, of the president. It's not just the task of, of the senators and representatives. It's the task of citizens and educators and, and journalists. I mean, that's, that's what's on our plate. I, I want to just read one paragraph from what you wrote on this. You write, if a group of people cannot agree on the fundamental aspects of reality, they cannot be expected to govern or be governed effectively. And I thought that was especially interesting. I'd never really stopped to think about that last part. They, they cannot be expected to be governed effectively. Uh, in a sense, if you are incapable of believing anything that uh, somebody from, for instance, the other party is, is telling you is true or telling you must be done, uh, that really throws uh, kind of a fundamental wrench into the way that our nation has has always operated. A great conservative um, philosopher, Edinburgh, said that um, individuals must acquire a sense of self-control. You must control yourself. And if you can't control yourself, somebody's going to have to control, control you for you. Uh, your fetters come from in, in, within or they come from without. Um, if you look at the kind of political history of the 20th century um, in the Southern Hemisphere, um, in which uh, places like the continent of Africa and, and South America went through a process of decolonization, right? Um, and gained their independence. They acquired the right to self-determine their own laws and, and, and so forth. But one of the legacies of colonialization was the drawing of borders of countries by colonial powers in London and Paris and, and Portugal and Spain and so forth. And they drew those borders on the basis of the territory that they could militarily control with no consideration of the patterns of culture and, and social identity and linguistic um, uh, practices of the people's in these places. And so all of a sudden, these countries found themselves independent and responsible for governing the people in their borders. But those people had different religions, they had different languages, they had different cultures. Um, and it's been a real struggle for many of those countries to reconcile those different perspectives. When it comes to collective action, which is a very kind of basic thing, how do we organize collective action? There are real challenges for human beings in this regard. One of the key challenges is what in social science we call the coordination problem. The coordination problem is that we all have different perspectives on what the public interest is. And we have to reconcile those different perspectives. 
how do we reconcile them? Well, hopefully, this is the kind of the dream of enlightenment thinkers 400, 300 years ago. Um, you do it through reason. You do it through dialogue and discourse. <clears throat> but if we come to the table trying to engage in dialogue and discourse with dramatically different perspectives on what reality is, then the coordination problem is, is magnified to, I think, uh, the level of it's a Gordian knot. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in this project that I referred to of kind of rehabilitating this idea of nationhood, we really have to commit ourselves to trying to understand the truth, to believing that there is a truth. Um, and that doesn't mean that different perspectives aren't possible that are reasonable. I, I totally believe that there are. We don't all have to come to the table um, agreeing on the various interpretations of what's real, but we, we have to, we have to agree to the existence of certain kinds of facts. Um, and then we can, from there, begin to talk a little bit about what they might mean. But we live in the world where conspiracy theory is, is rising in prominence and we're increasingly susceptible to, a, to it. There's good social science research that suggests that, um, that people who have higher levels of, of distrust of others are more susceptible to believing in conspiracy theory. And so, you know, as distrust in the country rises, so too does our susceptibility to conspiracy theory. And, and, and it's a dangerous, nasty, positive feedback loop. We're speaking with Dr. Gerald Mast, a professor of political science at, at Carthage College. Well, that kind of lays out, in a sense, where we are at the moment as, as a nation. Uh, it also ends up then posing a question about a, a possible way forward. And, and, and so I want to ask you about uh, the kind of challenges that confront uh, President-elect uh, Joe Biden and his administration as they take over in, in a time already incredibly challenging just because of the COVID-19 pandemic, of course. And, uh, but on top of all of that is this this landscape that you've just laid out, I think, very, very clearly, very vividly. Uh, so were you in a position to advise President Biden and his closest advisors on a pathway forward uh, in this rehabilitation process, which you've already said is not the sole responsibility of the president, uh, but he can certainly be a part of that. Uh, where do you see that work happening, and especially what role would you see the Biden administration playing in that? Well, in some sense, uh, you know, Joe Biden is, has, you know, campaigned all along that he's the candidate to, you know, take on this responsibility. He, he, he has cast himself as, as someone who, you know, is not, wildly ideological who who believes in the country who believes in 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 um the goodness of people on both sides of the aisle who wants to work with republicans he's he, he's been saying that for for some time and so you know it would be a surprise for him to stop saying those kinds of things we expect him to invite mcconnell up to the oval office we expect him to invite guys like Ben Sass and Mitt Romney up to the office, Oval Office to, to, you know, identify ways to kind of work together um, on, on policy problems. So, you know, I don't really think that, that Biden is, um, you know, 
in a difficult position in terms of, of, of tackling the public's expectations of him and his rhetorical strategy to, to tackling these kinds of things. I guess where, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I have been um, fairly pessimistic about um, President-elect Biden's prospects is on policy them itself, right? His ability to get the government to work um, effectively on tackling some of these problems. Um, but his task got a lot easier this week. Um, the special runoff elections in Georgia um, both went towards the Democrats, right? So that, that in itself would have been the subject of a morning show um, in a, in a different week. I was just right? going it's, it's amazing to think that something as momentous as that is a footnote <laughs> in the last right. Correct. Uh, uh, Ossoff is the youngest um, uh, person to be um, sworn into the Senate since Joe Biden some 40 years ago. Uh, he reflects a real kind of generational change. Um, Raphael Warnock is the first African-American um, to be elected senator from the state of Georgia. Uh, so historical candidates, um, really um, uh, surprising. And, and you know, enormously unlikely um, that the two Democrats would win um, a runoff election in Georgia, which has been a solidly Republican state uh, for a good 30 years now. Um, although that seems apparently to have changed, right? Biden won the state. Um, but even then, right, in the light of Biden's having won the state, you expect a significant drop off in, in turnout. Um, moving from a general election in which a president's on the ballot to um, a runoff election, but that didn't happen. A, a turnout was extraordinarily high. It seems like African-American vote um, is what pushed both the Democrats over the, the, the finish line. So, you know, you have to look at the kind of organizing um, voter mobilization efforts of people like Stacey Abrams and, and really kind of tip your hat to, to their, their efforts and their effectiveness in that regards. And so the task for Mr. Biden got a lot easier um, because now the Democrats will have 50 seats. Kamala Harris will be president of the Senate and will um, be able to um, cast um, tie-breaking votes. Uh, and it is also the case that the Republican Party in the wake of this week is likely to be, um, you know, in some sense, at a minimum chastened, uh, but also, I think, probably embroiled in an enormous um, internal conflict, a, a very enormous internal conflict. And as President Trump's legacy um, has been tarnished by the events of this week, there will be a significant effort on the part of not all, but a number of Republicans to distance themselves from uh, that legacy. And one way to do that would be to engage in bipartisan, um, uh, you know, legislation making. And you've already seen some comments. Uh, John Thune from um, North Dakota came out and said, look, you know, we, we really do need to start working across the aisle and, and, and passing some, some legislation to some of these problems. Um, so, how can Biden, you know, address these divisions? One way would be, I believe, to start passing some policy, start passing some um, policy that addresses our problems. Um, one of the, the important theories, I think one of the most important theories that explains our current situation, um, I think I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it on your show before, um, Ronald Engelhart and Pippa Norris, um, political scientists at Michigan and Harvard respectively, have found strong 
correlations between rising economic inequality and rising levels of social intolerance. That as a society is engaged in economic inequality and, and, and rising levels of economic pressure, intense economic privation and, 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 and um, uh, competition intensifies social intolerance. And so if we can lower levels of economic inequality, then maybe we can dial backward the level of social uh, tension and social uh, hostility. Uh, that, that would be my recommendation. Dial down some of the powerful resentment that is in the air in so many quarters and, and distrust and a whole lot of other well, things. One of the things animating um, uh, the support for President Trump is a sense on the part of many of his supporters that the political economic system isn't really working for them. Um, and they're not wrong. There, there are some real reasons to be upset and angry with the, the development of the economy and the political economic system over the last you know, uh, half century. And President Trump made an enormous amount of, of, of hay, so to speak, um, by tapping into that anger. Um, I don't think his solutions were particularly effective in that regard. And if the Democrats can, can, can recognize you know, that tension and do something to address some of those angers the anger and that, that resentment, then perhaps we can move towards a kind of social cultural condition in which we have a greater sense of shared nationhood. Right. My morning show guest this morning, Joe, uh, uh, in, in a book, uh, talked about how what once was an ugly ditch is now an almost uncrossable gulf when it comes to uh, economic disparity in our country. And uh, you're pointing to a uh, another possibility uh, that uh, we will wait and see if it comes to pass. In the meantime, I really appreciate all that you have taken us through in this conversation. Uh, Dr. Gerald Mast, Professor of Political Science at Carthage College, I deeply appreciate your participation in today's morning show. Thank you so much. More than welcome, Greg. It's always good to be here. <laughs>